Hey everybody, Ed here, coming at you with another episode of Current History. Now, for the last couple of weeks, we've been on quarantine here in the United States, and I feel like the kid that can't go to recess because the rest of his class keeps talking. Idiots keep protesting with guns, and the police didn't do a damn thing to stop them. But suddenly, people are protesting that the police are murdering people, and suddenly it's tear gas away, boys. But... I'm coming at you here with some information I've been learning mid-quarantine about this teeny little spot called Chechnya. Now, don't feel bad if you don't know where this place is, because up until I started researching this, I didn't know anything about Chechnya. But I read an article a couple weeks ago about the guy who's in charge of it, Ramzan Katerov, and how he pretty much rules the place with an iron fist and does whatever he wants within the borders of the country. And I thought, what the hell? How does that even exist in the modern world? Even more, how does that exist when Putin is the one in charge of Russia? Like, how does he let this little twerp run around and play warlord in a corner of his country? Well, I started digging into this article, and what I found was actually super interesting. So let me drop some knowledge about Chechnya on you. Fair warning before I start, though. This podcast might have a little bit more of an improvisational tone than you're used to, because I'm winging it with less than half of a script, mostly bullet notes. I'm just gonna tell you the damn story. You ready for this? Let's go. So first, let me hit you with some basic information about Chechnya if you've literally never heard of this place like I had when I started reading about it. Chechnya is in the Caucasus Mountains, which is right between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, and it's not its own country, it's a semi-autonomous republic of Russia. Now, Little Chechnya is 95% Islam today, and converted way, way back in like the 16th to the 19th century. Chechnya was conquered by old-timey Imperial Russia, and then when the Soviet Union formed, they got trapped in that unhappy little basket. Then, when the Soviet Union was breaking up and a bunch of places were declaring their independence from Russia, Chechnya tried to declare their independence, but Russia smacked them down because Russia is gigantic and Chechnya is less than the size of King County. So now, before we continue with our story of the First Chechen War, we gotta talk a little bit about our boy Vladimir Putin. Now, you of course know this guy as Russia's famous leader, always posing for pictures bare-chested on a horse, trying to get those manly man credits. But before Putin was the glorious Russian man shirtless on a horse that we know today, he was a little bitty spy in the German Democratic Republic, which was neither democratic nor a republic, and he was working desk duty for the KGB which you have to say with a Russian accent. It's not allowed any other way. Well, little old Putin worked his way up from being just a little liaison in a KGB office to working at the headquarters till eventually he became the head of the FSB, which was the new Russian security bureau, which is just the KGB wearing a fake mustache and trench coat. Now, at this time, the Soviet Union had collapsed and the new Russian Federation had taken its place, led by Boris Yeltsin. And he had re replaced all the old corrupt Soviet Union guys with new corrupt Russian guys. One of them being Putin. But Boris Yeltsin had a problem. He could not step down without 
the new guy coming in, throwing the old guy under the bus for being a corrupt piece of garbage so that he could establish his new corrupt empire. So he had to be very careful about who he selected to take his place when he was gone. And he was looking around for people who were loyal, people who would protect their corrupt masters even when it served them to throw them under the bus. And he found little Vladimir Putin. Now, Putin, back in St. Petersburg, had protected a boss of his and made sure that even when a big corruption scandal broke out, his boss managed to get on a plane and get out of town and Putin covered for him. So Boris Yeltsin's looking at this Putin guy and thinking, all right, this is the kind of corrupt son of a bitch I can work with. So he begins grooming him for a spot in the sun. He's going to be the new Russian president. But there's a bit of a problem. The Russian people are not a fan of KGB agents, and just calling them FSB agents is really not buying them any slack. So they need to convince the public to accept this spy, this spook, as the new president. Now, buckle up, because this is the part of the story where you need your tinfoil hats on for the level of conspiracy theory we're delving into. Because... I'm a pretty much accuse Putin of committing the Russian version of 9-11. Let me explain. So the first Chechen war goes 1994-96 to and ends with Chechnya in de facto self-rule, as Russia just kind of bails. And the Russian government takes away a couple of lessons from this first Chechnyan conflict. The main lesson they learn is that if you go into a war like this without the people on your side, you can lose even if you've got more men and tanks and planes. If your population doesn't support the war and is protesting and raising hell, you're going to have troubles. And that's exactly what happened in the first Chechen war. The people both didn't support and didn't understand why the Russian army was, co was committed to an armed invasion of a part of their own country. And on top of that, the Chechen militants fought a brutal guerrilla war against the Russian army, killing people left and right and using civilians as human shields to make the Russian army just look terrible. And by all accounts, they were terrible in this war. They treated the population just horrendously, but so did the Chechen militants. The poor people of Chechnya were just stuck between these two assholes duking it out over their territory. And all of this bad behavior just resulted in the Russian population and the Chechen population turning against this war. So now the Russian government knows that if they want to bring Chechnya back into the fold and really control this territory, they need to invade again, but they need to do it better than the first time. They need the people on their side and they need a clear reason why they're fighting and a goal that all the Russian people can get behind and no one will protest against. Meanwhile, in Chechnya, they had pretty much gotten their independence from the first war, although Russia didn't recognize it, but Russia had pulled their troops out and kind of let Chechnya run its own thing. And one of the people that was in charge of Chechnya at this time was the elder Katerov, the father of Ramzan Katerov, who we talked about at the beginning. Now, elder Katerov is the leader of one of these rebel groups. He's got a militia backing him. He's the head of a powerful family. So he's got close ties in Chechnya, and he's kind of running the show here after the first war. But the elder Katerov fought for nationalism, for an independent Chechnya. 
and before his eyes, he starts to see the movement for a free Chechnya change from one focused on nationalism, the idea of creating a Chechen state, to a more religious conflict with Muslim extremists coming in from the Middle East and wanting to turn the war into a jihad against Christian Orthodox Russia. This new brand of Chechen militants also brings some strategies with them, like terrorism. Now, let's go back to Russia for a second. Russia is dealing with Chechnya having sort of declared its independence, which they're okay with. Now, what they're not okay with is when Chechnya starts sending militants into the neighboring area of Dagestan, another part of Russia, and start agitating against the Russian army there. So Russia's already pretty pissed at Chechnya and not happy about their independence. But then a new event shakes Russia and totally changes the games, and that's called the apartment bombings. All of a sudden, one after the other, apartment buildings across Russia just explode. People are terrified, 300 people are killed, I believe four total apartment bombings happen, and this really has people on edge. If you were around after 9-11, you know that it doesn't take a huge terrorist attack for people to feel unsafe no matter where they are. And when it's apartment buildings getting blown up, this is hitting people at home. The people are scared and they want revenge on whoever is destroying these apartment buildings. Putin comes out strong saying, you know who did this? Those Chechen separatists. He points the finger firmly at them and gives the Russian people uh, an enemy to rally against, a evil to focus on. He says, those dastardly Chechens, they did this, we're gonna make them pay. Well, what actually happened is a little different. The first bit of evidence that something might be amiss here comes about at an apartment building in Ryazan. Someone calls the police on some suspicious people in the apartment building, and when the police arrive, they arrest a couple of men standing around a bomb in the bottom of the apartment building. And when they arrest them, they find out that these men are FSB agents. And the bomb that they're planting has old KGB detonators plugged into it. And a specific kind of explosive that the KGB was known to use. The FSB tells everyone that this was just a training exercise that got interrupted by the police. But people are not quite sure, and they begin investigating. The Duma, the Russian parliament, sets up an investigation committee, and they don't really manage to find anything, and the Russian government starts stonewalling. And as time goes on, two members of the commission to investigate the incident have been assassinated. Then the lawyer for the commission gets arrested and jailed for four years for revealing state secrets. Years later, a former FSB agent who blamed the FSB for the attacks in two books that he wrote was poisoned by the FSB in London with polonium-210, a brutal poisoning with a radioactive alpha emitter that caused all of his internal organs to fail over the course of a month. I remember when this article came out talking about this spy getting assassinated, but I didn't know that this was why he was assassinated. I also remember them going around with a Geiger counter and finding out that everywhere that the guy had gone to the bathroom before they had caught it was super radioactive from the waste from his body. 
Polonium-210 poisoning is not what you want, because alpha emitters are like any other radioactive thing, except they have trouble piercing the skin. So you could rub an alpha emitter on the outside of your body, and it probably won't do much, though I won't recommend it. But if you eat an alpha emitter, and it touches your internal organs, it will just melt through you like a tiny Chernobyl inside your body. And that's what happened to this guy who tried to tell people that Russia had planned this attack. On the other hand, there are those that argue that Russia didn't do it. There are a couple of arguments that fit with this theory, like that they could have attacked Chechnya without doing these apartment bombings, because Chechnya had just attacked Dagestan. Another line of thought is the, the terrorism is stupid argument, where because the attack had the effect of increasing Russia's power, retroactively it must have been Putin and Russia that planned it. The argument is that they couldn't have possibly known that this was going to happen in advance, it could have easily pushed people the other way. And then the last argument is the classic, the government sucks at conspiracies because they're just too big of an organization and they would have had some leaks from some people if they tried to keep a secret this big. This argument's kind of blown out of the water by the fact that there have been leaks from multiple people. Since the investigation into this in Russia got shut down, we may never know for sure whether or not the government was involved in this plot. But the U.S. government might know. On July 14, 2016, a Freedom of Information Act request was filed with the State Department for any documents related to those apartment bombings or the unexploded bomb, which is called the Ryazan incident. The CIA refused to acknowledge whether they had any records on this because they said it would reveal, quote, very specific aspects of the agency's intelligence interest or lack thereof in the Russian bombings. So in other words, the CIA is like, well, we can't tell you because it might blow our sources that are high up in the government. AKA, it's the if we told you, we'd have to kill you defense, which is the CIA's go-to whether they have the information or not. But the State Department finally did release some documents, and in a cable from the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, they found a conversation with another ex-Russian spy. In this conversation, the former spy told the American embassy that the real story of the apartment bombings could never be known because it would, quote, destroy the country. The ex-spy said the FSB had a special unit who were trained to, quote, carry out this type of urban warfare. Because of the apartment bombings, the second invasion of Chechnya is framed as an anti-terrorist operation for the obvious scary terrorist threat that Russian people were terrified by. Therefore, because it's an anti-terrorism operation, Putin could justify military use rather than political negotiations, because you can't negotiate with crazy extremists. Makes it easy to keep using the military to pacify the region and push back on any critics who say that they should negotiate with the Chechens. At the same time that the apartment bombing situation is playing out, Putin's got another strat at play in Chechnya. And that is to Chechnyize the conflict, aka bring in local Chechnyans so that it doesn't look like a Russian takeover, it looks like fighting for Chechnya. So he looks around for some enemies to turn into allies, and the elder Katerov fits the bill. He was a leader of the rebels in the first war, but since then he's not a fan of the Islamic militants coming up from the Middle East. 
He wants to fight for independence, not, come, not some kind of Islamic state. So Katerov jumps ship, and he decides to join Team Putin. He promises that any Chechen militants who switch to his side will get amnesty for everything they've done before, and a lot make the jump. These militants are organized by his son, Ramazan Katerov, into the family's personal militia called the Katerovsky. If you guys had a militia named after you, what would you call it? I think mine would be either the Edsky or the Smithsky. Neither are very intimidating. With their own army backing them and the Russian military behind them, the Katerovs brutally put down all rebellion within the country, crushing their former allies alongside the militants from abroad. And after taking control of Chechnya, the elder Katerov rules for a few years till I think 2004 and then is killed by a bomb planted by Chechen separatists who thought that he had betrayed their cause by going with Russia. They fought for independence, but the Katerovs were swayed by an offer of autonomy instead. All of this leads us to the region today and Ramazan Katerov, the warlord of Chechnya. Roll credits! Now, Let's talk about how Chechnya runs today. Ramazan runs this extrajudicial militia called the Katerovsky, which he uses to do policing within the country, commit violence against his political opponents, pretty much do whatever the hell he wants. In 2015, Katerov murdered a Russian politician opposed to Putin right next to the Kremlin, so not even in Chechnya. This was embarrassing for Putin, who looks bad when the neutered opposition gets assassinated, because he keeps them around just for decoration. They're not actually ever going to oppose him. So Ramazan killing them makes it look like Putin can't even control his own house anymore. Katerov had openly challenged Putin, despite Putin paying his allowance. Putin's money is what runs Chechnya, and it's how Katerov keeps loyalty with all of his men. So what Katerov does is he threatens to retire if Putin's ever starts sounding like he's going to turn off the money tap to Chechnya. He says, oh, maybe I'll just take a break, you know, step down as president, let anyone else who wants to be become president, even though he's killed everyone in the country who could possibly take his place. That's so that Putin knows if he ever wants to try to replace Katerov, there's going to be another civil war in Chechnya, and he's going to have to send in the army, and it's going to be unpopular. Might as well just pay the man instead, right? With these strategies, Ramazan Katerov is able to expertly play Putin, who of course could crush him militarily if he decided, but that would be hard, and would be expensive, and would be a huge pain since Putin is now stuck militarily in both Syria and Ukraine. Does he really want another civil war on his southern border? I think not. So Katerov can keep needling him and getting concessions out of him and getting autonomy for his little country so that he can run it just how he wants. His father may have fought for independence, but it's Ramazan who really controls the autonomous country of Chechnya. Now, this wouldn't be such a problem if Ramazan wasn't also a massive dickhead. The dude is like a combination of Trump and Putin and just the worst warlord you could possibly find. 
because he runs most of his communications from his Instagram account, where he regularly posts pictures of him doing dumb stuff and trying to look manly around Chechnya. The other shitty thing about Katerov is that he really hates gay people. Over a hundred men have been sent to concentration camps for homosexuals in Chechnya, and a spokesperson for Katerov denied these allegations, saying that gay people don't exist in the region, and that, quote, you cannot detain and persecute people who simply do not exist in the Republic. A Chechen human rights official, Keda Saratova, said that, quote, in our Chechen society, any person who respects our traditions and culture will hunt down this kind of person without any help from authorities and do everything to make sure that this kind of person does not exist in our society. So it sounds like it's not that gay people don't exist in Chechnya, it's that they don't exist anymore because of their persecution. This is a horrible thing and obviously should be stopped, but in Vladimir Putin's Russia, anti-gay murders and concentration camps and recrimination are just another day in the life of being gay in a terrible country. So that's our story today of Vladimir Putin Chechnya and the warlord that's yanking Putin's chain all up and down the Caucasus mountains. What I was interested in this story is this difference between independence and autonomy. The elder Katerov fought against Putin to be a free country, but under his son, and because of the elder Katerov's rule through the Second Chechen War, they now run Chechnya as a semi-autonomous little country because they sided with Putin instead of fighting for independence. The question now is how stable is this Chechen autonomy? Because it's not based on institutions, it is based on individuals. It's based on the relationship between Katerov and Putin. And if either of those two men were to disappear, who knows what would happen to the situation. Katerov has pretty much set up Chechnya so that if he ever goes away, the country will inevitably be plunged into civil war or be taken over by Russia. Something bad had happened. And what do you guys think of the fact that Putin may have been responsible for a massive false flag terrorist attack? That's pretty wild, huh? Whack. I hope everyone's doing okay out there in quarantine, and as always, pray that you are never reincarnated as a gay man in Chechnya, because that sounds lame as hell. Pour one out for those poor homies just trying to, like, live their fucking lives. Also, pour one out for all the people getting brutalized by the police in the United States right now. Sucks to be them. But God, keep protesting, y'all. The laws are changing right before our very eyes, and we're not going to get anything without screaming and yelling for it. Anyway, that's me, and this is my Chechnyan story. I'm Ed, and this is Current History, signing off. Boom. <laughs>